So this evening, the theme I'd like to explore is one that's pretty closely related to Devon's talk last night on forgiveness, and that's the theme of compassion. Because forgiveness really depends on our capacity to meet pain with kindness and care instead of our more usual habitual responses of resistance and rejection. And as I was listening to Devon's talk last night with all of you, it felt to me at least like there was a very strong energy of compassion in the room as we took in some of the painful life situations that he described so powerfully, and as he modeled how to meet them with openness, not more hostility. So I was wondering actually if this talk on compassion is even that necessary, because last night felt like we already had a master class in practicing it. So in some ways I might be preaching to the choir, as they say. And yet, in my own experience at least, learning how to relate skillfully to psychological and emotional pain of all kinds has been, and sometimes continues to be, an important part of my practice. So I wanted to continue this exploration of the afflictive mind states that I started last week, this time focusing more on the compassion wing of the practice. So just to begin with a quick recap, last week I touched into some of the very common afflictive thought patterns that often show up quite intensely on retreat. And I framed them in terms of what we might call lack mind, feelings of inadequacy, unworthiness, not being good enough, as just one example. And then another comparing mind or mana assessing ourselves in terms of other people and seeing ourselves as inferior, superior, or equal. And last week I described some of the ways we can use wisdom to help release the grip of these afflictive states. So firstly, mindfulness recognizes the internal dialogue that's using often very distorted language to reinforce these afflictive states. For example absolutist statements such as I always, I never, I constantly, or fixed statements that reinforce a rigid identity, I am this, I'm not that, I am the other, or directive statements that strengthen the judging mind, I should, I shouldn't, they should, they shouldn't, and so on. So mindfulness helps us to recognize these symptoms of distorted thinking. And then wisdom helps us to challenge those habitual thought patterns by reminding us of the three universal characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta. These thought patterns are impermanent, they're stressful, and they're impersonal. And if the afflictive thinking hasn't got too strong a grip on us, It's sometimes possible just by reminding ourselves of these three characteristics that the thought pattern can release. So we can experiment as almost like a first line of defense, just telling ourselves, okay, these afflictive patterns are arising due to conditions. They're passing due to conditions. They're not me. They're not mine. They're not who I am. And they're not my fault. 
There are other times, though, when mindfulness is weak and the thought pattern really gets its metaphorical claws into us. We get totally caught by it. And then the afflictive thinking pattern gives rise to all kinds of painful emotions, which then further undermine our capacity to see clearly. And we might find ourselves stuck in psychological misery for quite some time. And this is the type of situation where we might need to turn to the compassion wing of the practice. Compassion being the capacity to turn towards pain, towards stress, distress, dukkha, with kindness and care, instead of our more habitual strategies of avoidance, denial, resistance, judgment, anger, despair, and so on. And sometimes people ask, well, what's the difference between metta and compassion? So in my overview of the Brahma-viharas a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that metta is more of a, a kind of a generalized goodwill, generalized kindness and friendliness. And when this basic goodwill or friendliness turns towards pain, stress, distress, suffering, it flowers as compassion. So compassion has a more specific orientation towards dukkha of all kinds. And because of this, it's harder to misuse as a strategy to avoid discomfort. So I mentioned the other week how early on in my own practice there was a time when I was, I recognized that I was trying, mostly unsuccessfully, to use metta as a way to distance myself from my own and others' pain. Compassion, on the other hand, invites us to get up close and to really know and feel into that pain, not as an exercise in masochism, but as a means to help it release. However, as you will know, as human beings, we're hardwired to try to avoid pain wherever possible. And so maybe partly because of this, partly because of compassion's association with pain, many people have strong and often unconscious conditioning to resist compassion practice. And this was certainly true of me in my own practice. And as Guy mentioned a few weeks ago, many of us come to the Dharma in the first place to try to get away from suffering. Inevitably, though, there are times on this path when all kinds of pain does come up. And when it does, it's easy to fall into the trap of believing that we did something wrong or that there's something wrong with the practice itself. And often coming into more direct contact with pain reveals our unconscious escape strategies very clearly and our unconscious beliefs about how this path is supposed to unfold and what kind of experiences we should or shouldn't be happening So early in my own practice, I had a deeply unconscious belief that if I just meditated, just meditated long enough, hard enough, deep enough, I'd find some kind of metaphorical eject button that would blast me out of all of my messy and painful emotional, psychological, relational and life issues onto some kind of pink cloud called Nibbana where I would live happily ever after. So it's not surprising with that very unconscious model in my mind that I had a lot of resistance to any suggestion that this path is not about escapism. 
It's about developing a wiser and more compassionate relationship to the myriad forms that our dukkha can take. In other words, the way out is through. Or as I shared the other week, if it's in the way, it is the way. So in some ways, this is a path of transforming obstacles into vehicles. So compassion practice can bring us face-to-face with our own individual conditioning and also face-to-face with our broader societal conditioning. Generally speaking, our dominant Western culture doesn't value compassion or any of the heart qualities very much at all. And that's pretty obvious if we look at the state of the world right now. It can feel like we're in the midst of an epidemic of non-compassion. And it feels like we're reaping the results of this undervaluing of compassion on a global scale, a planet-wide scale. And partly because of mainstream society's tendency towards perfectionism and competitiveness and domination, for many people, even the idea of cultivating compassion can seem quite foreign, even threatening. So we're fortunate that the Buddha didn't just say, be compassionate and leave it at that. He gave us actual practices that we can do to train in cultivating this beautiful heart quality. Specifically, compassion is one of the four Brahmavihara meditations. So how do we do that? In the insight tradition, it's usually practiced similar to metta to begin with, by silently reciting words that evoke this quality of turning towards suffering with the wish to be free from it. And this last aspect is important because sometimes compassion is misunderstood as just being empathy. The capacity to feel into someone else's pain and sorrow as if it were our own. But in the Buddhist tradition, even as we may be feeling with and for another person, there's also an underlying intention towards the relief of suffering. So where possible, we do what we can to help ease or even release that pain. And it's this interplay of feeling with and imagining relief that helps protect us from empathy burnout or compassion fatigue. So the traditional compassion phrases usually acknowledge the suffering and include the wish for it to be released. So one example Simply, may you be free from your suffering, or may I be free from my suffering. And traditionally, unlike with metta practice, just one phrase is used, and this one phrase is repeated over and over in relation to different categories of beings who are experiencing difficulties and challenges of all kinds. And just like with metta practice, we're encouraged to start with where the difficulties are a little less intense, and then gradually bring the compassion muscle stronger until it can cope with more challenging forms of pain and suffering. So as we recite the phrases, we touch into our own hearts and minds, notice if there's any reactions, gently release, and keep orienting the heart and mind towards the aspiration to be free from suffering. 
So my, for myself, at first, uh, when I was beginning compassion practice, I found it a little hard to get traction with just that one phrase. So I'd like to share some phrases that I developed in my own practice that were helpful to get me started. I put them on the board the other week, but just as a reminder, I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release. May I know peace. And pain here is any kind of pain, physical, mental, emotional. So in short, I see that as a four-part process of aware, care, release, peace. And I came up with that set of phrases as a way to help soften some of the resistance I was experiencing in my practice. So the first two phrases help to show if there is, in fact, resistance to being with the pain. And then the second two phrases remind us that all of this practice is about moving beyond pain. So the first phrase, I'm aware of this pain, is a kind of a test. Is that true? Is there some willingness to to be aware and to acknowledge it? Sometimes the answer might be a giant neon no. (laughs) I am not willing to be aware of this. But that is still useful information. Because unless I recognize the resistance, there isn't anything I can do to soften it. And, depending on the intensity of the resistance, if the resistance is super strong, then wisdom might discern, actually, this isn't the right time to be trying to do this compassion practice. I might need to do something different for a while to soothe the heart-mind. And then when I'm feeling more balanced, come back and try again. So then the second phrase, I care about this pain, is also a kind of a test. Is that true? Do I care about it? Do I just want to get rid of it, make it go away? And again, if we find some resistance there, we might need to approach this capacity to care very gently. We might almost bargain with ourselves and agree to care about the pain for the next 10 seconds. That's all. And then after 10 seconds, we deliberately turn our attention away from the pain so that we don't get overwhelmed by it. And if this is done with mindfulness, it's an example of right effort, balanced effort. On the other hand, if there's a very clear lack of care about the pain or even hostility to it, then again, that might be a signal that it's not the right time. And we might literally or metaphorically bow out and just return to mindfulness of breathing for a while or go outside, do some walking in the forest, and perhaps have a cup of tea. The point is to do whatever we choose to do with as much consciousness as possible, because what we're trying to do is gently expand our capacity to be with dukkha. Pretty obviously, on some level, trying to force ourselves to get out of our comfort zones is a subtle form of violence. And it's totally counterproductive to the practice of compassion. So if we do find ourselves in that terrain, it's much better to take a strategic withdrawal and move away from the dukkha for a while. And I'll be saying a little more about how to do that later in the talk. So the third phrase, may this pain release, 
is a reminder that compassion practice is not just masochistic suffering for the sake of suffering. And while it's true that sometimes compassion is referred to as the heart that vibrates in response to another's pain, this is only one aspect of the practice. It's not only empathy. Because if all we're doing is feeling fully with another's pain, it can easily slide into the so-called near enemy of compassion, which is sorrow. So again, this is where we need to make sure that compassion is supported by wisdom so that we can stay balanced and not fall into overwhelm in the face of our own or others' distress. And maintaining this balance comes about through mindfulness, tuning in carefully to what's happening in the body, what's happening in the heart, what's happening in the mind, and noticing our relationship to experience moment to moment to moment. So in some ways, mindfulness is a type of whole being listening. It's an invitation to settle back and receive experience and when appropriate to respond to it rather than react. So this receptivity is not passive because out of that deep listening, that more embodied listening, we can intuit a skillful response. Later on in the Buddhist tradition, the link between listening and compassion becomes more explicit in the image of Kuan Yin. As many of you know, she's the archetypal embodiment of compassion. And she's sometimes known as she who hears the cries of the world. And in the Zen tradition, it's said that she listens as if she had ears on every cell of her body, which is quite a striking image. She doesn't only listen, though. She's also ready to do whatever's necessary to relieve suffering. So we're fortunate here to have to be sitting between two images of Kuan Yin, one behind me in the walking hall and one in front of me at the back there. And I think both of them are sitting in a very traditional Kuan Yin posture, which you may have noticed is one Half of her body is sitting in meditation like this. The other half is poised and ready to spring into action. So there's this beautiful balance of receptivity and preparedness to act. So she's simultaneously attuned to her inner world and to the outer world. So I often think of compassion as a practice of listening, of tuning in to our hearts and minds. And rather than trying to manufacture some kind of lofty emotion like compassion, to tune in and recognize what is already there. It may be very, very faint and in the distance, but the more we can attune to it and recognize it, the stronger it can become. Because compassion is a natural state of the heart and mind when it's unobscured, by the visiting afflictive states. So as a metaphor for this, I sometimes think of the Hubble telescope, which in my somewhat limited understanding is a very powerful piece of technology, one that's constantly searching the universe for the faintest signals of life. 
And sometimes I think of Brahma Vihara practice as being like tuning that Hubble telescope into the deepest, darkest spaces of our hearts and just trying to find those faint flickers of warmth that may be very, very distant. But as our compassion antenna gets more attuned, more sensitive, we recognize the signal more quickly and that recognition begins to amplify it and it starts to become more and more part of our heart and mind. And as it does, it becomes more possible to taste moments of openness and ease and acceptance, even in the midst of pain and difficulty. So the fourth compassion phrase, may I know peace, reminds us of this possibility. And at times we might need to help ourselves in that direction by consciously imagining ourselves living without that pain or stress, distress or suffering. What might it feel like to truly know peace? We might visualize being free of whatever the dukkha is and attune to that potential peace as vividly as we can to get a very immediate felt sense of what that might be like. So that's a brief overview of how these four phrases have been helpful in my own practice. And it is a practice and it's a creative one. So you can each find phrases that work for you and keep exploring and experimenting. And it still, for me, is a practice. So it's not like the phrases are some kind of magic mantra that we just recite a few times and then the pain just disappears. As I'm sure you all know in your own practice, being with suffering is not easy. It brings up all kinds of resistance and reactivity. So I'd like to just acknowledge a few of the common challenges that come up when we do try to cultivate compassion. And first, just to acknowledge, as I said, I think in the other, the other morning, uh, in one of the questions, all four of these Brahma-Vihara practices are known as purification practices, which in some ways means that they're designed to show us what gets in the way. So if we sit down to cultivate compassion and find ourselves wriggling with restlessness or lost in fantasy bored out of our brains, swamped by grief or completely numb and shut down, try to remember that this is part of the practice. See if you can meet these different reactions with kind curiosity instead of self-judgment so that you're not inadvertently just strengthening the afflictive states. Specifically in relation to compassion, there's one very common obstacle that comes up often, and that's fear. As I said earlier, as human beings, we're hardwired to avoid painful experiences, potentially life-threatening experiences. So it's not surprising that we would have a deep and instinctual fear of moving towards difficulty instead of away from it. And at times, this is helpful and necessary. So there's a caveat in this, in relation to compassion's invitation to come closer to pain. There are two wings of awakening, because compassion needs to be supported by wisdom. 
We need to cultivate clear seeing insight to know when our fear is just a knee-jerk reaction, an old unconscious habit pattern, or when it might be a wise fear, one that's keeping us out of genuine harm or danger. So with practice, with some degree of trial and error, we learn to distinguish between genuine and compassion, genuine compassion and what's sometimes called a little harshly foolish compassion or idiot compassion. And this is when we might get caught in unhelpful patterns of trying to help everyone with everything all the time, which of course is harmful to us, but potentially harmful to the other person too, because it can keep us caught in patterns of enabling or codependence of some kind. So wisdom helps us recognize when to say no and when to say yes. And the point of this wisdom is not to make us immune from suffering. Paradoxically, it's to make us more vulnerable to it. Because unless we can open to the 10,000 sorrows of life equally, we won't be able to open to the 10,000 joys either. So part of this training in compassion practice is learning to expand the spectrum of life experiences we can open to, while also recognizing and honoring those times when it is appropriate to close the heart, to stay safe. So there's a second way that wisdom needs to support compassion by making sure that in the service of releasing judgment, we don't also release discernment. Because sometimes there can be a misunderstanding that compassion means accepting or even condoning genuine harm that has been done. But again, this is not true compassion because it's not underpinned by wisdom. Wisdom is the discernment to see clearly, yes, that action was unskillful, that action was harmful. If it was an action that I myself did, then I make the resolve to never do it again. If it was an action that someone else did, then I might need to make sure that I don't put myself in harm's way again. Inwardly, we might maintain some degree of connection to that person, So as the saying goes, we might throw someone out of our homes, but not necessarily out of our hearts. But we still protect ourselves by setting boundaries or limits as to how much contact we might have with them. So forgiveness is also an aspect of compassion practice, as Devon shared with us so beautifully last night. But we need to take care not to force this process. Because, as he described, depending on the situation, it might take many years before we can arrive at a place of authentic forgiveness. When we have been deeply hurt or harmed, it can be an act of violence to try to force ourselves to open the heart too quickly or in the wrong circumstances. So we need to respect that the heart closes for a reason and not demand that it opens again unless, until it's genuinely ready. So as an analogy, a metaphor this, for this, a few years ago, I was, got curious about this rhythm of how the heart opens and closes 
and a vivid image came to my mind. Some of you know the marine creature known as a sea anemone. You know those small, brightly colored, jelly-like things that live in rock pools. And when I first encountered these when I was a child, I was living in Scotland at that time, and on family holidays, vacations to the beach, we would often go exploring the rock pools at low tide. And clinging to the sides of these pools were all kinds of multicolored sea anemones, blobs of red or brown, orange, jelly, fringed with translucent tentacles that swayed in the salt water. I think there's probably some along the coast of Massachusetts too. And my father showed me how you could reach down and gently touch the tentacles and they would instantly retract. So then there was just a smooth blob of jelly left behind. And as a five or six-year-old, I thought that this was magic. And I wanted to know why. I would ask my father, why? Why do they do that? And later I found out it was they do that to stay safe. But when the sea anemone's tentacles are retracted, it can't feed. So at some point it has to take the risk and open up again. And I felt like in some ways that's like the human heart. We alternate between periods of needing to stay safe and needing to feed. And that's that vulnerability that allows us to find nourishment through contact with others. So vulnerability is a very powerful component of compassion. And there's a growing body of social science research that's recognizing this link between our capacity for vulnerability and our capacity for happiness. So many of you probably know Brene Brown, the professor of sociology at Houston University. And she's spent over 10 years studying vulnerability and courage, authenticity and shame. As far as I know, she's not a meditator, but some of the conclusions she comes to sound a lot like this alchemical process that we're going through here. In an interview she did a few years ago, she even quotes the Tibetan nun Pema Chodron. So I'd like to read you a short extract from that interview where she's talking about afflictive emotions. She says, if you have a Petri dish, one of those glass lab dishes, and you have shame in there, this pervasive feeling of not being good enough, not being whatever enough, thin enough, rich enough, popular enough, promoted enough, loved enough, that shame only needs three things to survive in this little Petri dish and actually to grow exponentially and creep into every corner and crevice of your life. Those three things are secrecy, silence, and judgment. But if you have the same amount of shame in a Petri dish, and you douse it with some empathy, if you share your story with someone who can hear you and look back at you and say, you're not alone, shame dies. She goes on to say, Pema Chodron defines compassion as knowing your darkness well enough that you can sit in the dark with others. And she says, which is why it's so ironic to me that people think vulnerability is weakness when really letting ourselves fully soften into feeling 
is one of the most courageous things we can do. Emotions won't kill you, but not feeling them can. Our fear of emotion can absolutely kill us. Numbing the pain kills people every single day. So what's the antidote? To increase our tolerance for discomfort by practicing being uncomfortable. So how do we actually do this? Uh, Brene Brown points out that empathy is what makes the difference. In her words, if you can share your story with someone who can hear you, look back at you, and say you're not alone, this is what helps the shame to be released. To me, what she's describing here is compassion. And in the context of a retreat like this, we're learning how to do this for ourselves through the process of befriending ourselves. So one way into this is to imagine that to practice relating to ourselves as if we were relating to a good friend who's going through hard times. Most of us have some capacity, at least at times, to just be with a friend who's struggling in a way that's open and caring and compassionate. And if we can take that same compassion that we offer to others and begin to offer it to ourselves, then over time and with practice, self-compassion starts to come more easily. And yet for many of us, self-compassion is the most challenging aspect of this practice. And just the idea of it can bring up strong reactions for some people. So being able to see beyond our habitual conditioning is the beginning of wisdom, and it's also the gateway to compassion. Yet self-aversion and self-loathing seem to be so widespread these days that we need to have a lot of patience as we start to move into this unfamiliar terrain. So to normalize just how challenging this can be, A few years ago, I read a short paper by Paul Gilbert, a psychologist who's done research and works in this field of self-compassion. And he wrote a paper about the challenges that so many people face when they're trying to develop warmth and kindness towards themselves. He says, Commonly, for high shame and self-critical people, particularly those from harsh backgrounds, the beginning of the experience of warmth and kindness can ignite considerable sadness and grief. Self-kindness can be viewed with suspicion as being soft, self-indulgent, or not deserved. And this usually indicates the fear of developing or experiencing self-compassion. Further exploration might reveal that the individual is afraid that if they give up self-criticism, They'll become lazy, unpleasant, or unlovable. Others think that they'll be punished for self-compassion by paying for it later or having it taken away. So to begin with, the work of cultivating self-compassion might include learning how to relate very patiently to some of our deepest psychological conditioning. And sometimes when I work with students who are experiencing this kind of resistance, one of the challenges they tell me is that they can't find phrases for self-compassion that feel true and authentic. 
So sometimes I'll work with a student to uh, just play and see if we can come up with phrases that make sense for them. And in one case, the person was pretty resistant to this, even to the idea of self-compassion. So the phrases that we came up with together sounded something like this. May I be willing at some point in the future to have the intention to eventually move in the direction of beginning to cultivate some degree of compassion towards myself. So we might laugh, but even having that much intention towards self-compassion is a place to start. So just to give ourselves permission to be creative with the phrases or, not, or even not to use phrases at all. If the phrases don't work, sometimes when we recognize some kind of pain, just momentarily stopping and placing a hand on the heart just for a second, just as an embodied reminder to incline in the direction of relief. Or taking a moment to pause, to breathe in, to breathe out with what's difficult, helping the nervous system to soothe. And each time we do this, even if it's only for a nanosecond, we're making it easier for compassion to arise again in the future because of the understanding of neuroplasticity, that our minds can be shaped by what and how we think. So whether we're aware of it or not, each of us is constantly strengthening certain tendencies in the mind and reducing other tendencies. So what we want to do is strengthen the beneficial tendencies and de-nourish the unskillful ones. So I think in a previous talk I shared the Buddha's understanding of this and I'd like to read you just a part of that same quote again this time in relation to cruelty and non-cruelty, in other words, compassion. He says, Practitioners, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of ill will, upon thoughts of cruelty, one has abandoned the thought of non-cruelty or compassion, to cultivate the thought of cruelty, and then one's mind inclines to thoughts of cruelty. So we want to release the thoughts of cruelty and strengthen the non-cruelty, the compassion. And compassion is one very powerful way of strengthening these beneficial neural pathways and weakening the unbeneficial ones. And in all of this exploration, we're trying to find the middle way, the balance of the middle way. But particularly in relation to dukkha, to suffering, this balance can sometimes feel quite elusive. So on retreat, we often find ourselves reflexively avoiding, ignoring, denying pain, or alternatively, assuming that we're supposed to lock in on the pain, drill down into it and push ourselves to stay with it, stay with it, stay with it, until either it it implodes or more usually we ourselves implode. (laughs) Not helpful. 
I know from my own experience. So I'd like to take just a few more minutes now to offer some strategies for finding balance in relation to psychological pain. So first, just to say that these are techniques that are intended for working with those more deeply conditioned, afflictive thought patterns, ones that tend to be quite intense and to stick around for a while. If we're just going through ordinary day-to-day thoughts, temporary painful emotions, we can just stay with them, notice their temporary nature. But on retreat, perhaps because the mind is quieter, sometimes these afflictive patterns do seem to show up more clearly, strongly, frequently. And when they do, the first response is usually to clamp down on them in some way, just reflexively tighten up physically, mentally. Oh no, not this again. And right there is the place to practice. As soon as we recognize that habitual tightening or resisting, I try to bring in the mantra called ABC, which is something I borrowed from the Zen teacher, Charlotte Jocobeck, and it stands for A, Bigger Container. And it has to be very simple. It has to be ABC, because when we're in the grip of something, it needs to be simple. So ABC is the invitation to make space for whatever the difficulty is. Literally, physically, make more room for it, counteract that tendency to clamp down and contract. So one analogy for this process is it's like putting a wild horse in a small corral. If the horse is confined, it goes a bit crazy and it bucks and kicks and does a lot of damage. But if it's allowed out into a bigger pasture, there's more room for it to move. The energy is less intense and eventually it just settles down. So how do we make a bigger container? So for myself, when I feel that very first contraction of the body tightening and resisting, I might just right there sit up a bit straighter and try to open the chest and relax the shoulders and breathe a bit more deeply so that there's literally more room in the torso. And at the same time, I might consciously invite any tension in the body to soften and release. If that's not enough to create more space, then I might need to open my eyes and connect to the space in the room so that now the painful state is just one small object located within the bigger container of the whole meditation hall. And if even that doesn't work, I might need to turn and look out of the window and take in the vastness of the sky as a visual reminder of this space, connection with a bigger perspective. And if even that doesn't work, sometimes I work more imaginatively and try to sense into wherever the difficult emotion or thought pattern feels to be stuck in the body, perhaps in the belly or the heart or the throat. And I might visualize a warm energy or a golden light being beamed into that stuck place so that it might gently dissolve the tightness and the contraction. So the trick with ABC is to try to catch that very first reaction before it gets solidified into a more complex mood. 
So just as we want to keep an eye out for the very first thought or feeling, we might try to notice the trigger thought, that very first thought that starts the whole cascade. I was going to say one of the advantages of being on longer retreat, but maybe it doesn't feel like an advantage, is that we see the same patterns coming up over and over and over again. So you might recognize after the 200th time how that particular thought pattern starts with, oh no, here we go again, or I can't do this, or I'm a hopeless meditator, or what's the point, or nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I'm going down the garden to eat worms, which is a song, it's not a meditation instruction. (laughs) So we start to recognize what is that first thought. And the earlier we can catch it, the easier it is to not go into that full-blown proliferation. Still, though, When we do get caught, the next line of defense is to notice the emotion, to try to connect with the emotion underneath the mental proliferation that's driving it. And as I mentioned the other day, for most of us this is a training because it's not part of our culture to be able to recognize our own emotional states. But the more clarity we can get with them, the easier it is to find their antidotes. So investigating the mental state, being able to recognize, as I said before, sometimes we need to audition different words to see, is this this sadness? Is this grief? Oh, it's loneliness. Oh, loneliness with maybe a tinge of shame. Okay, now I have a clearer sense of it. And I can begin to investigate it in the body rather than taking the stories in the mind for another spin. So staying present as clearly as we can, noticing the sensations. Oh, uh, the heart is pounding. Face is flushed. There are buzzing thoughts in my head. Feeling of hollowness in the belly. Oh, okay. Sadness is like this. So we're trying to keep our energy out of more intellectual analysis just staying present with the sensations, the feeling tones, the emotions, so that we can access a more embodied and intuitive understanding about what's going on. And as I said earlier, we want to take care not to reinforce our reactions, views, opinions, and stories about the experience. So if we do find ourselves starting to get into internal arguments and looping over the story over and over that's when it's time to take a strategic withdrawal. And again, this is not cheating. It's wisdom that knows when to engage and when to back off. So part of the skill of this practice is recognizing how strong is our emotional immune system right now. So in the medical profession, they talk about titrating, which means adjusting the dose of a medication to suit the patient's condition. We want to give them just enough that it's effective, but not so much that they get side effects. And in the same way, and when we connect with these painful mental states, we might need to take in just a little at a time. 
So as one friend of mine talks about taking in just homeopathic doses of reality. (laughs) So then for the same reason, if we do start to get overwhelmed, we might need to move away from it. And sometimes people think, well, I might be missing that one chance to work through this issue once and for all. But it's pretty unlikely, at least in my own experience, that these recurrent mind states will just disappear forever and there'll be never another chance to work with them. So moving towards and away from difficulties is sometimes a practice referred to as touch and go. So we might just touch in, recognize the painful mind state, notice how we're doing with it. If we start to get reactive, then go. And go means withdrawing our attention from the experience deliberately moving it away. Sometimes it's beneficial to move the attention to an experience that's pleasant. Or if we can't find something pleasant, then something that's neutral. And again, this move is made with full awareness, with the intention of bringing the heart-mind back into balance. It's not about just running after pleasant experiences the minute we touch into anything unpleasant. So just to give an example, if I start to notice a very sticky, afflictive emotion come up, I'll just use shame for the purposes of this description. If I was working with that, it might sound something like this. Ugh, okay, oof, shame. Okay, yep, I recognize you. This is pretty unpleasant. Stay... Painful memories. Okay, stay. Oh, that's enough right now. Okay. Yeah, I can feel the warmth of my hands. I can feel the softness of the shawl around my neck. There's another pulse of shame. Okay, hello. Okay, that's enough. Touch and go. I can feel my feet in contact with the ground, some cool air against my skin, I'm aware of the space in the room, and so on. So that's just you know, one simple example of what it might sound like. But again, this is for each of you, if you do happen to be in these states, to explore this for yourself. And although I've been focusing so far mostly on self-compassion, The more we can develop tolerance for our own pain and vulnerability, the more possible it is to authentically meet the pain and vulnerability of others too. So when I was here on staff at IMS, during that time I had the opportunity to volunteer in a nearby prison. And a couple of colleagues and I would go there every Sunday for three years to meditate and to explore the Dharma with whoever was interested. And when we started, me and my friends had never been in a prison until we started facilitating that group. So the first six months, we really, all we did was hold space and listen to the men to get a clearer sense of what, if anything, we might be able to offer them that would be useful. And after some weeks and months of us showing up every week, there started to be a group of regulars who also started showing up week after week. 
it took quite a while, but eventually there started to be a bit more of a feeling of trust and safety. And so one Sunday I asked the men, what's the hardest thing for you now about being inside? And one of the men took a deep breath and he said, you know, this might sound like a small thing, but one thing I find hard is how each week we all come together in this group and we share what's going on for us. But then when we leave and we're outside the group, it's like none of that ever even happened. And we don't make eye contact with each other. We don't acknowledge each other in any way. And there was quite a long silence in the group. And then an African-American man got up and he, said, he got to his feet and he, said, he just said, I want to acknowledge that what that guy said was right. And he acknowledged that he himself had been one of those people who didn't acknowledge the others outside of the group. And then he said, I'd like to make a humble request of this whole group that all of us, can we make a commitment to not do that anymore? And he asked each man if they would be willing to at least make eye contact, maybe even smile when they saw each other in the yard or the chow hall or anywhere else. And every man in the group at that time said that they would do this. And then the first guy who'd spoken also got to his feet. And in the middle of the circle, these two men hugged each other and thanked each other for making that commitment. And when I witnessed these two men hugging, one was black and one was white, I felt a shift in my own heart, and I felt a shift in the whole group. And the next week, when I went back, the energy in the room was subtly different. And one of the men told me that they'd been doing Anjali to each other in the yard whenever they passed each other. (laughs) And I was like, are you sure? (laughs) I guess you know what you're doing. So I share this story as just one small example of how one person can make a difference. If one person has enough self-compassion, enough courage to be vulnerable, it can ignite those same qualities in all of us. And although in the context of a silent retreat, it might seem like we're practicing compassion for our own benefit, the more we do this for ourselves, the more it becomes possible to meet the suffering of our families, our communities, of the world with this same compassion. And our practice shifts from being self-centered to other-centered, or perhaps more accurately to non-centered because there's no distinction between self and other. So later on in the Buddhist tradition, this fusion of wisdom and compassion became more explicit through the development of the bodhisattva ideal. And the bodhisattva is someone who takes a vow to postpone their own freedom so that they can help others find their way out of suffering too. And whether or not this ideal resonates for us personally, we might still connect with the underlying understanding that this effort that we're making here is of benefit not only for ourselves, but everyone we come into contact with. So I'd like to close with just a few of my favorite lines from Shantideva's Bodhicharya Vatara, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. 
You've probably heard them, but this is a Tibetan text that His Holiness the Dalai Lama apparently reads every day. And it is a whole book, so I'll just uh, share a few sample lines that convey this aspiration of compassion very powerfully. May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May I be the doctor and the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's just sit in silence for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.